I have a mosquito bite on the knuckle of my middle finger, and it's been driving me crazy all day. Anyway. Mosquitoes are bad this year. They're really bad. In fact, there was someone at the gym yesterday. Their entire, it looked like they had pox. Their ankles were just covered. No. Oh, no. And maybe it was pox. But for me, uh, someone said, my, someone said, no, that's just mosquito bites. Because I was like, wow, look at that. Oh, we're, I forgot we're recording an intro right now. Yes. So we're so thrilled that Oprah Winfrey has decided to make her pick after this guest was on Gay's Reading. She, he was on the, ep- we recorded I know, I'm kidding. I know, no, I know, I know, I know. I'm joking, I'm I joking. I know, I'm so excited for our guest Nathan Hill and how it, his wellness is this month's Oprah's Book Club pick. So um, deserving. Before we get into that, I want to shout out another book that comes out today. It's called People Collide by Isle McElroy. And I read it and I loved it and I was so moved by it. And the log line is a gender-bending, body-switching novel that explores marriage, identity, and sex and raises profound questions about the nature of true partnership. It is a simple, sleek, tight novel that I just picked up because it was the book that was sitting next to me while I was on the couch and I had just finished another book and I couldn't believe how much I loved it. I immediately wrote to the publicist and told her how much I loved it. And unfortunately, we just didn't have time in our schedule to interview Isle. But they are a really beautiful writer. And we're going to give away two copies of People Collide. So head over to our Instagram to check that out later this week. But it's a great novel. And it's about a relationship and pairs beautifully with wellness, which is also Mm -hmm. about a relationship. So yeah, I I wanted to shout that out. And Brett, do you want to talk about our next big thing that we have coming up? Sure. What is that? Our patron. Oh, yes. Thank you, Jason. I was like, wow, you're putting me on the spot. Yes. Launching the beginning of next month, we're happy to be starting a Patreon level. So this is all new to us. It's going to launch beginning of October. What that is going to include is we're going to put out a monthly newsletter as well as bonus content, either from episodes that have already aired that we didn't get to all of the information for a particular episode, as well as some episodes we hope that will be for Patreon subscribers only. So look for that in the next week Beginning or so. of October. Yay. Yeah. Which I can't believe we're already at the beginning of October. Oh, it, it was so incredible having Nathan Hill on. I, The Knicks, which is his book that came out in 2016, I talk about in the episode how it had a big impact on me. And it was just, it's so good. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But here's a little about Nathan. Nathan Hill's best-selling debut novel, The Knicks, was named the number one book of 2016 by Entertainment Weekly and one of the year's best books by The New York Times, The Washington Post, NPR, Slate, and many others. It was the winner of the Art Seidenbaum Award for first fiction from the Los Angeles Times and was published worldwide in more than two dozen languages. A native Iowan, Hill lives with his wife in Naples, Florida. Thank you so much for all of you that are listening. 
If you like and subscribe, it's the fastest way to know what's coming. So follow uh, us on Instagram, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be the first to know when an episode drops. So you don't drops. miss any of this stuff. None of it. If you haven't read the book, if you haven't gotten a copy of the book, you can do so in our show notes and on our bookshop.org page. The great thing about the bookshop.org page is every single episode we do has all of the books on there that are talked about. So it's like your one-stop shopping for everything that's been discussed. And yeah, I'm I am so excited for everyone to hear this. So I know we should just shut up and let them them listen. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm Brett. And enjoy this episode of Gaze Gaze Reading. Hi there. Hello, Nathan. Hey, Nathan. How Brett, are you? Brett is always yelling at our guests. I know, I'm I do. Sorry. You know, I realize that. I realize when people come on, I get very overly enthusiastic. And then I was going to overcompensate when you came on and be like, hey, Nathan, how's it going? Welcome to Game <laughs> Be enthusiastic. That's great. This is like one of the first interviews I've done about this book. So all the enthusiasm Yay. will be much appreciated. That's what we're here for. We're the hype man. Great. Yes. Gaze <laughs> Reading is the hype podcast. Congratulations on the new podcast. Thank you. You are our inaugural straight man. <laughs> you are. So we appreciate it. I'm, I'm like genuinely honored. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I know people ask, is it only going to be gay authors, gay books? And we're like, no, gay people read all kinds of books. All <laughs> kinds of books. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm very, I'm happy to be here. We like to have insightful conversations, but also have a really fun time. So buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I, should, I, I don't know, have a cocktail or something right now? So get a oh, cocktail. That's what we should have done. <laughs> Call your wife over because it's all going to be on your marriage. Well, it's, wait, did you ever spend time in Chicago? None of your bios talk about living in Chicago. So. Yeah, and I was interviewed recently by a reporter from Chicago Magazine, and I felt like a total poser because I, <laughs> I, I've spent enough time in Chicago to know it fairly well, but I can't claim to be a Chicagoan. So I lived in the suburbs for a little while when I was a kid, like in like third or fourth grade, and I went to college in Iowa City and Chicago was like the closest big city. So we would go to Chicago every once in a while. And then crucially, my wife and I went to Chicago every summer for 15 years. So she plays, she played in the Grand Park Symphony in Chicago. Mm, I don't know if you know what it is, but it's the free, yeah, the free concerts that happen on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday nights in the the, the big Frank Geary shell downtown. And Mm -hmm. it's magical. It is, it's a, it's a beautiful thing where you've got like some of the best classical musicians in the world playing for free and you get to come with bring some wine and have yeah, a picnic on the I've lawn. It's the best. So my wife played in that orchestra for 15 years. And so we would spend every summer for 15 years in Chicago. But, oh, but I've never lived there. After leaving each time, I'd, there, there's the, there'd be this kind of feeling of longing because it's a beautiful city. Oh, okay. We're going back to Naples, which <laughs> has its charms, charms too. But totally. I, I, I'm totally, I'm more of a kind of a city person and the, the heat gets to me. So anyway, but I like it as a setting for my books because I feel like with a setting, I feel like I need to have some feeling of like longing or nostalgia for it mm. to have some kind of power as a setting. Like I find that I can't really set place, set stories in places where I live because there's no like gap to cross. And so I pick Chicago because there's always been that nostalgia for it, that longingness for it. And I love it, but I've never lived there. So it makes for kind of an ideal setting for me psychologically, if that makes sense. I also imagine you have fewer blind spots in that Mm. you can see the full picture of the city versus like when you're immersed in a place, it's easy to ignore certain things. That's yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And I feel like 
I'm, I did the same thing with parenthood in this novel because I myself am not a parent. I know. Uh, I was wondering I write, that. Yeah, I, I write a lot about parenthood because I watched all of my friends going through it all at the same time. And uh, and so there, there's something about being separate from it that allows you to observe it with, a, I don't know, more, I don't know what I would call it, clarity. Or maybe you just notice things that, that other people might not. Or you're more free to say things that, that other people might not. So yeah, it's I, I like being a step removed from the things I write about because then I can fill that gap with some imagination. And stay step removed from parenting. Oh, trust me. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, if he does not have children, there has been serious discussion in that household. And there has also been serious discussion with all of his friends. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think I thank all of my parent friends in the back of the book because they really did help me a lot understand parenthood's highs and its lows and doing that thing where I haven't seen my friends in a very long time. So I'll try to sneak my way over into their houses after the kids go to bed with a cocktail shaker and just be like, hey, let's relive old times. And they're just like exhausted, like just watching that happen. It's you know, And also this feeling like I, don't, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but like parents these days, I feel like they're assaulted by so much information about how to be a good parent or what not mm-hmm. to do so you won't screw up your child forever. That it's just overwhelming and, and exhausting. I, I, I think that like my friends were roundly good parents, like really thoughtful about how they parented and not one of them felt like a success at it. And right. it just and, and all of them were tortured about any mistake they might have made that day might be the mistake that screws up their kids forever. And it just felt it felt so hard and that I felt like I wanted to engage with that in this book. You absolutely. I'll, I'll say it again. I had therapy this morning. <laughs> no, but you absolutely do. And we can, I, I feel like we should talk about this more. But first, just for our listeners, if you could just do like your log line to talk your, about what your elevator book, pitch. I know you said, oh, sure. You haven't yeah. done too many of these yet. So this is have I'm notoriously bad at it. I like, I had a publicist <laughs> yell at me well, like at, during the tour for the Knicks because I was like trying to explain the book. And she was like, that's terrible. But right. with this you one, can, you I, can't I, explain six to 700 pages <laughs> in a sentence or two. Yes. So, no. So, no stress. Yes. Okay. The story is about Jack and Elizabeth, and they are, they are teenage dreamers who meet each other in in the '90s in Chicago. They've both left home and gone to college far away, and they meet each other in a kind of fever dream of romance. It's a sort of Romeo and Juliet love at first sight kind of moment. And then very quickly we skip ahead 20 years, and life has happened. They're they're in jobs. They're midlife. They have a a kid that has certain challenges and life has not quite turned out the way they thought it would be. And so they look at those youthful dreamers they once were and they thought they think, where did those people go? And the rest of the book is uncovering where those people went and and whether that story was true in the first place. And 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 I don't know how much to give away here, but great. Uh, hij- hijinks that, happen. Yeah. Yes. No, that's great. So first of all, you talk about it being this relationship story. And I think what's fascinating about the book is it really is this, I don't want to use the word simple. There, I just said it. I put the word out mm-hmm. there. It is a relatively simple story in the, in that it's boy meets girl, girl meets boy, and then dot, 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 right? That's yep. the, yeah. the, the spine of the book. And it really, throughout the whole book, that's essentially all it is. You learn, it's, how do I want to explain this? It's as though the universe is writing a book while two people are going about their lives. I love that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's great. Because I was like, oh, this is everything you want to be learning about these people and where they come from and their little idiosyncrasies and where those come from. And you really go, it's a super deep dive into who these two people are and how they came to be in their present moment. And it's just, that's in and of itself very cool. And the book is so dense that you can't imagine. It's like, how is this only about these two people? It is. And like all of those intricate details around it. 
All of that to say, in your acknowledgments, you very specifically say this is not about you and your wife. (laughs) We can have an entire conversation about that in general. But I think one of the first questions that come to mind is, did you learn something from Jack and Elizabeth about your own relationship or that influenced your own relationship from writing the book? That that's such a good question. And uh, and also a really generous read. Honestly, it's like really a, like an honor to to be read by someone who's thinking about the book this deeply. So thank you for that. That's a real pleasure and, and wonderful to hear. Yeah, I wanted to tell a love story that was a, a little bit different. I wanted to write about a story uh, that that featured a couple, but that had three main characters, which is a husband, a wife and time. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted to I wanted the reader to get to know these people in the same way you get to know a partner in real life, which is forwards and backwards at the same time. You, you spend your days with them, you go on dates with them, and you understand who they are. But then you also get those old stories and you meet their parents or you see where they grew up and like they reveal secrets from their past. And like you achieve this kind of synthesis where you're getting to know them forwards and backwards simultaneously. And the more you know them, the bigger the secrets they're willing to divulge to you. And so I wanted the experience of this book to feel similar to that. And uh, with with regards to my own marriage, it's funny. It's like I I wrote a story when I was in my mid-20s about I was I just moved to New York City and I I wrote the story about these two people, lonely people at their windows looking across the way into other someone else's apartment. They're looking, they're staring at each other, they're spying on each other and slowly, weirdly falling in love with each other as, as they watch. And I thought it was a magnificently romantic story in my mid 20s. And then I returned to that story in my mid 40s. And I was like, that's not romantic. That's just naive. I'd been like happily married for many years by then. And I was like, that has nothing to do with what it takes to put a real marriage together to make a long relationship last. And and so I thought it was a perfect container for a story about delusion, about the stories we tell ourselves about love. And, And honestly, it made me think about the stories we tell not only about our own ourselves, but also about our partners. I I feel like we have a tendency to say, this is who my partner is and put them in a sort of box and and mentally not let them get out of that box and not accept that they change over time. And I, and I think writing the story really made me think about not only how I, I've changed since that moment that I said I do, but also how my wife has changed and the mm-hmm. world has changed and our friends have changed and sort of mm-hmm. accept that rather than trying to cling to, to the story that was true 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Even just the concept of evolving within a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I right. think that My husband and I have been together for almost 10 years, married for six years. Brett has been in his relationship for a very long time. We talk about this on a lot of our episodes because it seems to be relevant for so many things. But something that, in terms of evolving in a relationship, you touch on something that I find to be taboo is maybe the right word, but the concept of consensual non-monogamy. And my instinct, and I could be wrong, but my instinct is that NPR isn't going to talk to you about that, but Gay's <laughs> Reading, we're going to talk to you about it. Um, because not to pat ourselves on the back, but the gays tend to pave the way for certain things. Mm-hmm. I think Grinder was one of the first apps for people to connect, and now everyone is meeting on Hinge and Tinder and everything like that. And like, you're <laughs> yeah. welcome to the straights. Yeah, right. And the straights, though, though sometimes like, act like sexual Christopher Columbuses. Have you heard about right. these things? That's exactly <laughs> Honestly, I joke, we're, this, we're going to go on a tangent for one second, but I joke about that in terms of reading. Because I came into reading relatively late in life, and I treat it as though I'm Christopher Columbus. I'm like, have you heard of this thing called reading? And I have to tell you, Nathan Hill 
one of the first books that I read where I was like, oh, I can do this was the Knicks. Oh, thanks. And, and you're talking I... because of its size. <laughs> no, but that's, right. I'm not, no. that's not a sexual I, joke. No. I was like, know, oh, intimidated. I, exactly. I'm yes. not just reading these like small on the Barnes and Noble. Pop on 50% pop. Off. Sure. No, but like, I was like, oh, this is literary. It's long. It's deep. Where it's are the meaningful. pictures? Well, though this does have some. Anyway. So big fan of the Knicks. And, and really, I think that book brought me into reading. Anyway, I've Christopher Columbus, the Knicks, and reading. Thanks for that. <laughs> but in terms of non-monogamy, I think a lot of people look at gay men and they see like, oh, they're probably sleeping around with all these people or they're in open relationships. And there's a lot of judgment around that. This is not giving anything away, but there are themes of non-monogamy. There are conversations about non-monogamy when you're in a relationship for so long and how to keep your connection deep and real while shaking it up a bit and having mm. a good time and enjoying your life. Can you, that's, I'm just throwing spaghetti at you and saying, <laughs> can you talk about that? But what did all that mean to you? Where did that come from? I also just think it's really important to be talking about non-traditional relationships mm -hmm. and, you know, it's okay to be doing things a little bit differently, whether you are or not, but just to be a little bit mm -hmm. more open-minded. It's something I've been preaching a lot. So I, I want to practice what I preach. Yeah. I will say that I totally predicted this question. Like I was talking about, <laughs> to my wife earlier this afternoon and she's, I was like, they're going to ask me about polyamory. I know yes, <laughs> Nobody I, else is going to be asking nope. about this, but this is great because my one chance to answer this question, which I love. Uh, Bring it on. <laughs> I, I, I guess that's, that is in there for a couple of reasons. The uh, first is I love, I love writing about subcultures. I, I love writing about, in the Knicks, I was writing about online gamers I was mm -hmm. writing about the student protest movement of the 60s. I was writing about the particular norms of a college campus. In this book, I'm writing about polyamorous couples. I'm writing about like fitness gurus and, uh, you know. Yeah. Also, polyamorous heterosexual couples. Yes, exactly. And one of the reasons I like writing about subcultures so much is I think they do in a very explicit way what the rest of us do in a sort of invisible way, which is all agree to live by a certain story. And mm -hmm. and their story just happens to be very different from what we might call the mainstream or traditional story. And so a lot of drama and comedy can happen when you take a person who's living by one story and smash them into somebody who's living by a completely different story. I think it's hard to enter into that conversation without feeling like your own story has encountered a kind of acid bath. Am I really living correctly? And so I thought they would be the perfect foils for Jack and Elizabeth who are having these midlife marital issues. And, and here they encounter someone who's living by a completely different story. And what's that going to do to them? I thought it, was a, it would be a great moment for both comedy and drama. You don't only insert this storyline, you really break down the meaning of monogamy. You like literally yeah. talk about where it comes from and mm -hmm. why it's all fucked up. And I was talk about things I literally... My my therapist knows I'm talking to you today because I talked about that last week in therapy. I was like, I just read this in this book. I need to talk to you about it. <laughs> he, did, he did text me at one point and say, I'm being very triggered by this book. I really, just again, like we've been in a relationship for a long time. And mm -hmm. I think to some people, my husband and I, we would call our relationship monogamous. I think other people mm -hmm. would call it monogamish. I think other, like mm -hmm. there are other, depends on who you are and what your perspective is and what your definitions are. But it's it was triggering. <laughs> Somebody, wait, one of your one of your blurbs said something about it being triggering, and I was like, "Yes, <sighs> I agree with that person." I can't remember who it was, but it was it's someone on your website. Meanwhile, uh, I'm amazing. so grateful. I'm so grateful to be in the upglide of the U curve right now. So that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I feel this book is about how our worlds can be constructed and sometimes constricted by the stories we believe in. And I think for a lot of like heterosexual cis folks like me. 
there's a default story of about course. marriage that the story's kind of already been written for you. And so you walk into it. And what I really appreciate about, about friends of mine who are polyamorous or friends of mine who in one way or another practice a kind of open marriage or consensual and non-monogamy is how thoughtful they often are about what mm. actually works for them and how thoughtful they, they are about rewriting that script, that, that kind of default script. Uh, and so I thought it, it really worked thematically in this book. I thought mm -hmm. it was, it's a story about marriage and a story about the, about the stories we believe in about marriage. So in some ways, how could I not like really go after it? And it was a, a side effect that it happened to be, I found it really fun and entertaining and funny. Oh to my do. gosh. It's hilarious. And it's excruciating at the same time, <laughs> because I do, I, I think you're absolutely right. And we're all been raised, even as gay people, you talk all the time about Everyone has an idea about what's heteronormative and what's not mm -hmm. and what we're presented with down to marriage, down to roles of gender. Back to what you were saying, Jason, it's even in terms of sexuality. Yes. Like I, I remember having a straight roommate who was one of my best friends in college for two years. And he said to me at one point, I wish I was gay because you guys will fuck anything. And we're cock blocked by women all the time because that's oh what God. we've been taught in society. Like women are supposed to say no. Men are supposed to be the aggressors. And so that changes a whole dynamic. So it's fascinating. And, and it, it's that there was a party sequence, which is just so mm. funny. And again, a little bit excruciating. I hope so. Yeah, it was supposed to be both of those things. So I'm glad yeah. it came off. It is funny. And not that this needs to be like a, a hour long compliment sesh, but both. Like, I guess it can be. Let's, You're welcome. Let's be clear. I won't <laughs> object to that. Exactly. You're totally on board. But with both wellness and the Knicks, you really, with every page turn, you're like, ooh, this is so satirical. Ooh, this is so honest and realistic. Ooh, wait, this is really funny. Oh, wait, we're back to being a satire. So with every, really, throughout the whole thing, mm -hmm. you're making a lot of interesting comments about society, our world, both at a great scale and also at an intimate scale. Clearly, that's something that you intended. Gosh, I remember this when I was getting my MFA when I was like, I don't know, 22 years old. I remember writing the story. The story ended up going nowhere. But at the beginning of the story was this guy who was like after a shower looking at himself in the mirror and he drops the towel and he's just like critiquing his body. And he's just like, this is what this is just what I don't like. And I wrote that story and everybody in my workshop was just like, clearly this guy has like some kind of mental issue. They started diagnosing these crazy things. And, and I'm just sitting there thinking like, no, like that's just, I feel like that's just what we do. You know, that's, you know, and when you take something that we actually do and put it in a book, it changes it somehow and it distances you from it and you can see it clearly for the first time. So like sometimes all I do is just switch the name of something that we actually do. And that's enough to make us see it a little differently. Yeah. And if, if you don't mind me getting a little pointy headed, like about how I approach this philosophically, like I, I encountered a long time ago, I encountered this Russian literary critic named Viktor Shklovsky who was writing in the 1920s. And he, he said that the point of art is to defamiliarize the world. He mm. said that we easily get habituated to anything, war or one's marriage, that we can get used to a lot. And the point of art is to slow us down and to return life to life. That he, The quote that I love by him is that art tries to re return the stoniness to the stone. And by that meaning, like we take a stone's stoniness for granted. But if you can have an art object that makes you remember how a stone feels, as if you're feeling it for the first time, then art has done its job. And I really hmm. took that seriously. And I try to take the philosophy into my work and sometimes just not exactly satirizing something, but just like taking something that we all do and just 
turning it just enough that you can see it clearly. And so I'm doing that over and over in, in, in this book and in the next. And to that point, that scene when Jack is doing exactly what you just described in front of the mirror. And, and, mm. and I, again, I sat there aghast because I do this nightly when it says he'd always had such a small and slight figure and had always known himself as such a skinny guy, a frail guy, that he hadn't paid attention to this bulkier guy quietly creeping forth. You were literally in my head, in my bathroom, <laughs> in my body. The moment before I step on the scale and say, what great hell it will be unleashed this time. That's your fault for stepping on the scale in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, wow, wow. Anyway. Thank you. It can be sometimes shocking to, I don't know, I'll see a picture of myself and be like, that's not what I thought I looked like. like that, yeah. Doesn't yeah. everybody, yeah, you, that's what everybody does where you think, I got it going on. I look great. And then someone takes a picture and you look back and you're like, Jesus, that's what I'm putting out in the world? Yeah. Or like I, I turn a corner. The, the other day, this is happening. I was just walking on the street and then I turned a corner and there was my reflection in a, in a window. And I was like, what, really? That's, oh, who is, who okay. is that? I always, always do it now. Always put a coat on. Just keep your coat yes. on. A theme that I was thinking about, too, was just sense of self in general. And mm -hmm. there's this moment later in the book where Jack is talking about the young man he once was getting tattoos. He's annoyed with his younger self. And you go on to ask the question that really resonated with me. How could two such dissimilar people ever inhabit the same body? I think mm -hmm. that is also a really great example of time as the third yeah. character in the book. How do you feel like you've changed? From, oh, even yeah. from, let's say, the Knicks to this, or I can give you a shorter period of time if that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's something that's been on my mind, obviously, yeah. from the, this book. And it's funny, like, I have friends who I met in college during their hippie phases and who are now corporate lawyers. And I, met, I knew some people who, when they were in high school, were completely straight edge and sober or are now doing, like, ayahuasca retreats. <laughs> like, people can <laughs> really change quite a lot. And I, the, I the worst wonder, is the like, terrible people who then become doctors and you're like, oh, God, I don't want oh, you to yeah. have a scalpel. Don't trust you at all. For me, I don't know. This is all very like this is all very surprising for me. Like, I I don't know when I was 21, I was I, I, I think I didn't believe in private property. And now I'm like rehabbing my own condo in St. Paul. Like, yeah. I feel like at any given moment, if I look back five years from that moment, I was an idiot in some way that I didn't know at the time. Mm. And and so I don't know, you can feel embarrassed by that or you can embrace that. I feel like the characters in this book are having a hard time coping with that change. That they were Romeo and Juliet, and now they're not. And I always thought, like, with Romeo and Juliet, that story, had they not died at the end of the play, had they, like, gone and grew up somewhere else far away and had a kid and she didn't like motherhood and he had a dead-end job and they would look at themselves and they're like, we're fucking Romeo and Juliet. What happened? Like, that story would be constricting for them. And and I don't know, I, I feel like I feel like it's we're always under the influence of the stories that shape us. And those stories are those large sweeping forces that, that flow through us, our childhoods, our family history, our culture, our evolutionary forces. They're all sweeping through us. But but uh, those stories are also very proximate who our friends are, where we get status at any given moment. And and, and those things are 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 powerful. And so I don't know, I feel like one of the points I'm making in, in this book is to not let those stories calcify too much, not let those stories like calcify into error, not believe them too hard to, to always, whatever stories you're believing in, believe them with humility and curiosity because things change and, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And is that to sort of get out of that in your own head? Is that all you do is think about that? Think about that it's okay that things change? I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm I'm any better at this than anybody else. I just I, I feel like I'm just trying to describe it in the in the best way that that I can. I think we all do it. 
Sure. Yeah. No, this is certainly not a self-help podcast. You have the other component of this book that you, it's so great. Families and both their families and the origin stories of these two characters. Two things that you do so beautifully is one is as the book progresses, we get to see, and you could talk about stories that are created, who these parents actually are. Mm -hmm. And first of all, who they were to these kids, but also who they were as people once they become adults. Do you think you ever escape the shadow of our parents? Uh, Yeah, probably. I don't know. It's like some of those things pop up just like breathing. They're so natural. And, uh, And I think the best thing we can do is just recognize them and act accordingly. But I probably not in the book, I describe it as a as an algorithm that's just buried in your brain. Just like for Jack, it's this two word algorithm that like his mind just decided that it was easier to to pretend that all the trouble in his house was his fault than to accept the fact that he had no control over anything. And so that story, my fault, carries with him Mm. into adulthood. And I think to larger or smaller degrees, I I think we all do that. Right. Like Mm. I I had a, a happy childhood with parents who were lovely, but we moved throughout my childhood. Like I never spent more than two or three years in any place before we would move again. And, and so I think at some point I had this idea, it's don't get too close to someone because they're going to be taken away pretty soon. But once you recognize that, you're like, you can't stop that feeling from happening, but you can learn to recognize what the feeling is and put it in its place. So I think that's something that Jack and Elizabeth have not quite successfully done yet. Did you, were you able to reconcile any of that from your own life by writing the book? Because that those are themes in the book, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, moving, you mean? Yeah, this is the first time I've written about it. And, and it's, I don't know, I had to warn my dad. It's just like, this is coming. And, and they're, they've been trained now to know that like when I use something in a book, I'm not using it literally. Most of my books are, are tornadoes of, of fictional and real details. But when I use the real details, I'm amping them up in order to use them in the way that's necessary for the story, not necessarily mm-hmm. in the way I lived it. For example, I did have my tonsils taken out in a sort of emergency surgery when I was very young. That is a true story. And I got a spinal tap. That is all a true story. Oh my God. But I use it in the book and I, 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 I was showing it to my wife and she was like, oh my God, this is going to make your mom weep. <laughs> I had to warn her. I was just like, yeah, this is coming. This is not my memory of it, but this is how I need to portray it in the book for me to make it work. So I don't know. I feel like, again, I feel like one of the things that this book taught me was just was maybe the inevitability of of feelings, but you have a choice about what you do with those feelings. Mm. And, and I, th- I think whether it's when in one's marriage or one's relationship with one's parents or, or what have you, I think you have some control over how you react to the inevitable things that bubble up. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. I want to just say out loud, you've already talked about the structure of the book in terms of time and memory and reflecting the relationship and when you learn things about somebody and and that's the Mm -hmm. way that the book is structured. For me, I picked up later because there are themes or not themes, but it comes up. The idea of hypertext comes up at a certain point Mm -hmm. in the book. And for me, the book was hypertext. I was like falling down my own little rabbit hole. You fall down the rabbit holes to piece together one full picture. You are so right about that. You're, you have no idea how right you are about that. That is what? That's, yeah, seriously. I'm going to leave this in the episode. I like being right about things. <laughs> I, when I was in college and in grad school, I guess more in grad school, but like both, I was really into hypertext literature. I don't know if you you were into that as well, if you remember no, that at all, but really. it was this, it was when, when, Back when the hypertext link was brand new, uh-huh. and it was just like, look what we can do with this. And all of these kind of computer, computer-born stories started happening where you, you would have this kind of block of text and there'd be some links. And then you click on that on some word and that would take you into some different part of the story. And then you click on this link and it would take you into a different part of the story. 
And it was almost like you could construct the story yourself mm-hmm. through the choices that mm-hmm. you made and get a sort of impressionistic idea about the, about the text. I was so into it and I loved it. It obviously never caught on as a real literary movement. Where? It turns out that it's just hard to, it's hard to escape with a book when you're clicking links all the time. It's just mm-hmm. psychologically more, more difficult and you can't get into that flow state. But, but I really thought it was interesting. And so when I was writing this book, my thought was that every chapter, it would be as if you were reading a hypertext, but without the links. So like every mm-hmm. new chapter mm-hmm. would have some link from the old chapter. And it, it yeah. was almost like there, there'd be something that you clicked on in the previous chapter that would take you to this next one and not. And the story, you sort of felt a version of that emotionally as you were going, but then the hypertext chapter came and it was a big light bulb moment for me. I was like, oh my God, Mm. this is what the book is to me. And I was like, all right, maybe that's what the book actually is. So I'm very excited. That's true. You're very true. And then, and then, then, but then also there's a section in the book that's told basically from the point of view of a bunch of Facebook algorithms. I, I, oh my God. And first of all, and I just have to say about that, I said to Jason, that was such a brilliant, like I was... And I was at that point going between the text and the audio and mm. Raviel, who does the audio is, is so fantastic. Oh, he's so great. Yeah. But I was going back and forth. And so I was listening to part of that in the car and I was gripping the steering wheel. It's gratifying to hear that a section told from the point of view of algorithms was gripping. That's oh like a big yeah. headache producer. But, but I'll talk about that more in a second, but just connect it, to connect it back to the, the hypertext thing. It struck me that, that what hypertext artists were doing in a human way, the Facebook algorithm was doing in a machine way, trying to find connections mm-hmm. between things. But like Facebook is doing it um, mechanically and at scale, mm-hmm. whereas the artists of the 90s kind of hypertext era were doing it. So it, it, it seemed interesting to me that where hypertext went was basically social media. It didn't go into into literature. But yeah, that that section was really kind of interesting to write. I, I, I had to read, oh my God, I like Facebook is very closed off about its its property, obviously, but like they have to file patent applications for anything that the, any algorithm that they want to patent, they have to file an application. Oh, wow. And so you you don't get the actual math or programming of it, but but you do get in those patent applications, you get a, an explanation of why it's necessary. I must have read 50 Facebook patent applications, and these are dry, like 80 page documents in order to find like things that I could use that, 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 that worked. And so like the needy user algorithm is a real thing. And it just struck me as like just perfect that to describe not only what this particular algorithm was doing, but also why when you leave human relationships up to mathematics, things just get screwy. Yeah. And I think it's speaking to such a specific generation right now, because I'm dealing with my, I haven't talked to my dad in three and a half years Mm -hmm. because of, I think the algorithm. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's happened to me too. Not with my dad, but with but with people in my family and yeah. with, with with people who I was once close with. Like, I, like there are some generally older guys that like we didn't share the same politics necessarily, but we could be f- civil together. We could be Correct. friends even, and and that sort of stopped happening right around the time that the algorithm became ascendant. Yeah. And I, I really mourn those losses. Those people are. I just can't. I can't. I cannot go back. To them like after what i've what they've been through on facebook i just can't but i mourn that and and so i wanted to investigate that via that 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 section and something that you articulate so beautifully that was i would say the most triggering of the book to me <laughs> was the kind which is a good thing books books are supposed to make you feel things listen in 600 okay. pages shit was it's, about it's good it was about it's to gonna happen. be occasionally triggering right. okay all right <laughs> But that Jack's dad was not the kind of person to, you know, Jack 
being a a, a softer kid, mm-hmm. more uh, emotional. And his dad was not the kind of dad who said, toughen up and be a man. He was perhaps a bit more empathetic. And mm-hmm. to watch him fall down a rabbit hole, yep. that is my story. I saw Little Women the Musical on Broadway with my dad. My dad waited with me at the stage door of Gypsy to meet Bernadette Peters in a blizzard. Right? Like, Oh, my God. And he's the person who I haven't talked to in years now. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you know, listen, again, I had therapy this morning. But yeah. <laughs> it it was, I also know it's not only my story. I know it's a lot no. of people's story. And I, I couldn't believe how much you were able to unpack in both the entire book, but also in nuanced ways that can be shared experiences for, I think, so many of our readers. Art, the way we look at art, the way we think about art, uh, the list is so long. One of the quotes that I pulled was, if you cling too hard to what you want to see, you miss what's really there. Mm-hmm. And that moved me so much, too. What are we so desperate for that we can't even see what is actually right in front of us because we are we want it to be something different or what's in our imagination? Yeah, yeah. that quote means a lot to me, too. It's uttered by one of my favorite characters in the book. Ours, um, too. And- yeah. And she's talking about art history then. And, and she's talking specifically about, about the art of the plains. I, I lived in Kansas for a little bit. I went to high school in Wichita, Kansas. And, and my parents lived there for a little while longer after I went to school. I went to school in Iowa City and I would drive from Iowa City to, to Wichita and back occasionally. And I would drive through the Flint Hills and it's this like mm. giant open space of mm. just grass and soft rolling hills, like the result of a inland sea two million years ago. And, and it's just this it's a beautiful place that cannot really be depicted in pictures because it's so flat. Like you you try to render it two dimensionally and it just doesn't come off. And uh, I don't know, it's one of those happy accidents that like I wanted, it was after the pandemic I was, or after I was during lockdown, I was feeling very claustrophobic. And so I wanted to set something in the Flint Hills because when I think of openness and escape, that's the ecosystem that I think of. And and it was just one of those gifts that the world gave me that it turned out that art of the Flint Hills was all manufactured, basically. Like, nobody could really paint what that looked like. And anyway, people people back then, before the invention of photography, when landscape um, painting was really about what does something look like, d- had no training on how to depict something that didn't have forests or rivers or trees or, or mountains in the distance and they just didn't do it they just didn't paint the prairie really at all until they got to the rocky mountains and they're like oh here's something that our training has prepared us to depict and it just struck me that we think of the midwest as a sort of emptiness as it's literally plain it's the plains and and i and i'm just wondering well, maybe that's because we thought nothing was there and it, when you think nothing's there when you expect to find beauty only in trees and mountains and you don't encounter that you miss what's really going on. And I find mm-hmm. that landscape utterly beautiful. And uh, I think I'm in the minority. But it was a gift because I'm like, this goes really well. It synthesizes really well with the other themes at work. That like when you have a story that you tell about the world or about yourself, you miss what's really there because you're hemmed in by that story. And you mm-hmm. are also appreciating the planes for what they are. You're right, not right. trying to make yeah. them be something else. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about because we've really touched on just said her without saying who it was. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about Evelyn? Because yeah. she's, she's such a, a beautiful character. And I think she represents so much to Jack, but also to us in terms of the possibility of what's out there, the possibility of escape, the possibility of a larger world, as well as the appreciation of art and beauty. I wanted a character who had that kind of joie de vivre, that expansiveness that Jack would long for. 
And, and I thought it would be interesting to, to present somebody who really does embody the ethos of the book, to be okay with uncertainty, to be okay with mm -hmm. mystery, and don't fall into the error of thinking that you know everything. And, but Jack misinterprets that. He just thinks, okay, if I just become an artist like my sister, if I just move to the city like my sister, then I'm going to be like her, but without actually importing that, that other thing. And so what happens when he tries to be his big sister, but doesn't have the sort of personality to get away with it? What does that do to his mm. life? He's living, living a bit of a lie. And, and it, I don't know, it's, I'm obviously not the first one to talk about what it feels like to live somebody you're not, to not live your own truth is the way mm. it's said these days. But I remember when I first, you know, decided I wanted to be a writer and I went to an MFA program on the East Coast and I moved to New York City and I was like, okay, I need to impress the people at the Paris Review or whatever. And I'm like writing about New York stories for these New York people. And I'm just like, I'm not, I'm completely not writing my own truth. And, and it wasn't until I actually abandoned New York and left the publishing world and didn't send out a story or whatever, and just worked for 10 years on the Knicks and just decided I'm just going to have fun in the chair. I'm going to write things that I find beautiful and we'll see what the world thinks that it, that anything happened for me. And so I think that lesson is embodied in a much earlier age in Evelyn. Like hmm. she's much wiser than I ever was. Yeah. To completely change subjects, but hyperlink from you talking about spending 10 years on the Knicks, when this book was announced, when wellness was announced, I saw so many people coming out of the woodwork saying they were so excited for a Nathan Hill book. They thought it was going to be like Harper Lee, where you wrote one book that everybody loved <laughs> and then never and then became a recluse and never wrote another book ever again. <laughs> You have to feel that pressure. I was like, the question was, do you feel pressure? But you have to, of course, like there's, how do you, how do you combat that? Maybe you don't. You're very nice looking You, you guy. look at the, you look at the bibliography and realize he spent the last five years doing research. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Like I, I've never felt any external pressure. There hasn't, nobody in my publisher, you know, publishing house and my agent, nobody's ever pressured me in any No, way. but to live like, up I've, to your own standards. Yeah. I, yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. I felt that pressingly, but it's funny. I've seen that quote too. I've, I've been lurking on Goodreads a little no, bit. No, you know, so tell us that. Uh, yeah. No, so, okay. You're not supposed to, but I do this Don't anyway. Don't do it. <laughs> I left Twitter in the first place because it was just yeah. an emotional minefield. I couldn't do yes. it anymore. But, but, but yeah, people have like multiple people have said, is this going to be, we thought he was going to be a Harper Lee. And, and <laughs> I'm just like, the Knicks came out and for two years, I said yes to every speaking engagement that was offered to me because I never thought that the book would be a success. And so I was like, I'm going to gobble this opportunity up because it might come only once. Good for you. So I spent two years touring and then like a couple Hollywood things like maybe almost materialized. So I spent another year trying to make that happen. And th then and then that was ultimately a victim of bad timing because then the pandemic happened. And then I, I wrote a book and, and then it was done like a year ago and it's been in like edits and post-production ever since. So to me, I was just like, like I took two and a half, three years to write a book. And I didn't think it was that was that long, but but apparently a lot of other people do. So uh, I guess I was taking my time, but I didn't feel I didn't feel any pressure to rush it, though. I did. Yeah. I did feel I, I don't know. Honestly, I felt the same way I felt with the Knicks, which is I'm going to pour every ounce of myself into this thing. Yeah, um, because if I can get mushy about it, I have a lot of respect for readers like they could be doing any other thing than reading. They could be like they could be enjoying uh, the outdoors they could be eating a cheese sandwich but okay we're talking readers come on take it easy now yeah like uh, <laughs> they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna spend some time with the book and so i need to bring everything to that effort and i guess that for me that just takes a while i have to say i really appreciate you saying that because as i mentioned i was a late in life reader and the next was a book that made me feel like i could actually enjoy reading and do it oh, i love that and the more i've read 
the more I've realized how so few authors feel that way about readers. I think authors appreciate readers, obviously. That's who they're writing for. But I don't think everyone necessarily thinks about, oh, somebody's going to spend a few days to a month plus, depending on how fast or slow you read, with this material. And frankly, is yeah. this worth their time? Right. My, I've, I have recommended so many books to my husband, and he is oh, he used to be a big reader, but he really only picks up a few of them. And he said to me recently, he was like, I want to read a book that I feel is going to be worth my time. I'm going to get something yeah. out of. It's going to change the way I think about something. And I was about halfway through wellness. And I was like, you're going to love this book. You have to read it. <laughs> I also, but, I frankly, I appreciate this. It's not to interrupt you, Jason, but I appreciate for me the size of the book and what you're completing with the book, because it can also be certainly, I'm not afraid of a big book. I know some people are, but there's also so much in here. And I was so engaged with these characters as I was with the Knicks that frankly, I could have kept going. I was afraid to leave them at the end. Sad, not afraid. I was sad to leave them at the end because of this journey that we'd just gone on together. And that's the mark of just a, a, an incredible book to me. Thank mm. you. And like, I've, I had those experiences, of course, like formative experiences when I first just started reading like John Irving and I would encounter yeah. these, these huge stories that it ached when I was done with them. Like what yeah. a gift to give someone. And I don't know, I, I feel like I want, I, I feel a, a large sense of responsibility for that. I love that. I just have to bring it up. I, we're, we're so close to time, but I, to keep pace, I listened to the audiobook and read mm. it at the same time, which I've yeah. never done before. Oh, I like doing that. Yeah. It was amazing. But I have the galley. Yeah. And so it was fascinating. I was catching so many of the most random tweaks or omissions or what yeah. like clearly things that have changed. And there's one in particular I want to bring up to you. Oh boy. Um, okay. <laughs> so so it's with Ben. They're talking about porn. Mm -hmm. Ben searches dicks and Jack says, wait, I'm not gay. And Jack says, no shit. Wow. And in the final version, that's it. No shit. Wow. And then they keep going. In the galley mm -hmm. that I have, he says, no shit. Wow. How disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> is Ben gay and sad that Jack is not gay? Or did Ben assume that Jack was gay and was sad that he was wrong? In the first version of the book. And by the way, with this and the hypertext thing, this is like the two most incisive questions I know I'm going to get all tours. <laughs> this is great. There were in the very, in my very first iteration of the book, like way back when, yeah, Ben was gay. And, and then as that character developed, he started taking a turn and he started becoming more kind of fitness bro-y and uh, it just didn't make sense for him to be gay anymore. It just, it felt like it was, it just didn't feel right. And he started seeming more like the dudes I encounter sometimes in the gym who are just like, yo, don't eat bread. That's basically poison. And he just no longer, it just didn't seem right anymore. So I made that change. And then the, that, that line that you caught that I eliminated was just like a, a relic of a, a previous totally. version of that character. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I felt very lucky to have caught that in the galley. Because <laughs> obviously, if I had I read the finished copy, I wouldn't have even tapped into yeah. that. So I was like, ooh, what a fun question I get to ask. Because there's <laughs> clearly something there. Oh, how I tend to think, okay, so like my personal philosophy of how of writing a novel is the first ideas you have for a novel or like that toy slime that you played with as a kid. You remember yeah. slime? Yeah. yeah, I sure do. So I feel like the like when I first have a have an idea for a book, it's like that slime, and it's gross, but I can't help but play with it. And and I don't want to show it to anybody. And if I show it to anybody, they're embarrassed for me. But like the more you play with slime, like the more it picks up the stuff of the world and like bits of crumbs and dirt or whatever. 
And this is where my metaphor breaks down because like with slime, that makes it inert. But with a book, like the more stuff of the world attaches to it and suddenly it starts building and building over time. And then you've got this thing that you start chipping away at and then you can start shaping it. And, and at the end of it, you've got this like statue that everybody's like, what a great statue. And you're like, thank you. And you're tight faced because at the heart of it is this like gross piece of slime that you hope nobody ever sees. <laughs> and I yes. think you just saw you I just got saw a little a bit of slime. Bit of slime. Yeah, right? yes. Wow. <laughs> Talk about an Easter egg. What a way to end with a little slime. <laughs> oh, how funny. Nathan, this has been so fun. Fantastic. I can't believe yeah, our great. hour Thank has you. flown by. If my entire tour is this much fun, I'm in for a delightful time. Well, I hope we didn't just totally fuck it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> the bar is high. The bar is very high. Leave it to the gays. <laughs> this has been such a pleasure. Congratulations. Yeah. The book really is fantastic. Thank you so much. Enjoy the ride. It's going to be, I'm sure, a fun one. I will. I really appreciate it. Thanks for reading and, and being so, so thoughtful with your reading and your questions. Of course. Our pleasure. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Great. Thanks, guys. All right, bye. Okay, you too. Thank you so much to Nathan Hill for joining us today. What an honor and a pleasure. And if you are you. liking what you're hearing, follow us on Instagram. Check out our merchandise. The links are in the show notes. Uh, write us a review. Share us with your friends. Buy the book through our bookshop.org page, which is also linked in our show notes. If you missed our bonus episode, we released a really cool bonus episode last Thursday, all about the Booker Prize. We talked to Gabby Wood, who's the chief executive of the Booker Prize Foundation. And we talked to Tantuan Eng, who is a three-time Booker nominee. And have a wonderful reading week, everybody. See ya. See ya. See ya. 